Lord, we do ask that you would change the atmosphere here in this place. From one of self-focus to one of Christ-focus. Turn our eyes and our hearts and our minds to focus on you. Lord, as Moses had a request to see your glory, you first gave him your word. Then he caught a glimpse. This morning, I pray that we would turn our attention to your word and face the frustration of realizing that in many ways, there are some inconsistencies with your word in our life. I pray that we not find fault in the word, but we would clearly bring our lives to your word, ask that you make us more like you, and then, and only then, will we catch a glimpse of your glory. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Y'all may be seated. I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles. Everybody, Acts chapter 4, say Word. Word. We are in Acts chapter 4, continuing our lifelong journey through the book of Acts. Uh, we will be in the book of Acts for a while, until Jesus returns, or until, I don't know, we finish. There you go. Or you all go, meet the, go to meet the Lord, so that'll be a good day too. Um, you know, I was watching a, uh, a recent documentary that came out, caught my attention, pretty fascinating stuff, and it opened up with these words. I'm a, I'm a George Orwell fan. I read 1984 when I was pretty young, and it kind of shaped uh, my outlook on life. It kind of twisted my noodle a little bit. If you've read 1984, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but one of the quotes from the book is, during times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. A fascinating quote. Now that was used in relation to blood doping uh, and the radical under, underbelly of the international sporting and drug testing uh, that goes on, not just Olympic testing, but Tour de France and, and bicycling and swimming and, and really all aspects of competitive sports. We've seen that impact our, our football players and baseball players, you name it, everybody's looking for an athletic edge. And in that pursuit of the athletic edge, many are, are turning to blood doping. Now, there are many who are concealing that truth. And in fact, to tell the truth would have cost jobs and medals and millions, and for some, maybe even their very lives to speak the truth. And so the pressure has been applied to certain people's lives to remain quiet and to lie and to pretend and to cover up, leaving one single revolutionary act left, which is simply telling the truth. Well, see, that same exact pressure is applied to the apostles in Acts chapter 4, and maybe even the same pressure that you feel applied to your life here in this culture, that we are being pressured to remain quiet, to cover up, and maybe even lie about our association with, with Jesus. We need to conceal the truth because we might risk losing our jobs or our families or maybe even our lives. And as we saw last week, Two of the apostles out of the twelve were taken into custody, and while in custody, they were told to no longer speak the name or even teach in his name. They couldn't even speak his name. I mean, that was the command coming from the Sanhedrin, the 70 of the most powerful men in all of Israel. In fact, uh, look at verse 18 in chapter 4. In verse 18, it says this in the text, So they, being the Sanhedrin, I want you to keep in mind, 70 of the most powerful people in Jerusalem. They called them, that being the disciples, and charged them not to speak. Not even to speak the name of Jesus. 
or to teach at all, not even a little bit, not even like kinda, not even like a j, not, not even an assess, like no Jesus, okay? Not to at all in any way, shape, or form speak or teach in his name. And, and as I looked at that, I'm like, what do you do with that? You know, what do you do when you are told to literally, you, you cannot mention the name of Jesus. There were places where I was employed where they literally said, they expressly stated that you were not allowed to talk about religion. Like, no, G knows us. Like, no, Jesus. And I remember at one, one particular interview, I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, I was like, how is that even possible? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, I'm not walking around with like Jesus saves banners, but I'm just saying there's times where it just comes out. Like people ask you, Wait, what did you do this weekend? And they're talking about all that they did this weekend, and it gets to you, and they're like, hey, what did you do? And you're like, nothing. No, 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 what'd you do? I can't tell you. What'd you do? I went to church. Oh, what did you talk about at church? Oh, I can't really talk about that. Remember, I worked for the Gecko. You can guys kind of piece it together, uh, what company I worked for. And, and that was a part of the company atmosphere. You're not talking about religion, not talking about faith. And, and, and if that's something that's important to you, but keep it to yourself. And they had a ninth floor, and I would go up to the ninth floor, and it was cleared out, and it overlooked all of North Dallas. And I would go up there, and I'd pray, and I would worship, and I would read scripture, and then I'd go back down to my work. And I'd work at my station. And I, I don't know how it happened, but conversations would, would start, and I'd say, hey, let's continue this conversation over lunch. We'd have the conversation over lunch, and I saw people give their life to Christ. Like this, this reality that we're, we're being compelled and, and, and told that we cannot share the name of Jesus' family, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely crazy because I hope that our response to the pressure that maybe we feel is social norm or maybe we feel on college campuses. Natalie, I, what is the pressure? Do you feel like there's a pressure to not talk about Jesus on, on college campus? It's weird, right? And, the, and the, the apostles, look at how they responded. I love how they respond. Verses 19 through 20, but Peter and John answered them, Whatever, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. He's like, it's up to you, buddy. You're going to have to figure it out because we've been commanded to do this. And, and he goes on to say, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So first you've got to see and you've got to hear, then you speak. But he's like, look, we have seen him, we have heard him, we have received him, we speak of him, and we've been commanded by him. And so we're left with this, this, this pressure of saying, he, either I'm going to obey you being this, this person, or I'm going to have to obey the Lord. But it's very clear we've been commanded to take the gospel to the nations. In fact, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Who's all authority and, and uh, how, who's all the authority been given to? Jesus. Who has he delegated that authority to? Other people. Let's not get too personal. I'm sure he's talking to other people, because when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, I'm sure he's talking about a, a small, elect group of people who are, like, called to do ministry. We're like regular old folks, right? Like, let's not get too real here. But he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things I've commanded. I'm like, how do you do that without mentioning his name? And lo, I'm with you all the way to the end of the age. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48, Jesus is speaking to, to his disciples, soon to be apostles. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. It should happen. And then he turns to his apostles, or his soon to be apostles, he goes, you were witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Flip over to the right a little bit. I'm just trying to show you that this, this preaching Jesus thing is, is just downright biblical. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my 
witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. Speaking of the concentric circles of the gospel going out, we are filled with the Holy Spirit for the express purpose of bringing glory to God and proclaiming the gospel. So when you're standing there and somebody looks at you and says, you can't speak in his name anymore, you're like, well, whether it's right to obey you rather than God, you're going to have to decide, but we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. We're under a greater commissioning. And so the Sanhedrin does what the Sanhedrin does. They, they threaten and say, make sure you don't speak in this name, but something we need to recognize where we're at in the book of Acts, it's, it's what's launching into what I'll, what I'll call like a progression of aggression, okay? A progression of aggression is going to ensue. They started off with relative peace. The early church was very unique, and people looked in and said, wow, that's pretty uncommon. And so it was an uncommon, revolutionary kind of community. They were well-respected at first, and then they became a threat to the ruling party. When people become a threat, it's a threat to control. And when people lose control, they start to threaten. Okay, you're going to see that just in your natural, everyday life. When somebody wants to have control, they feel threatened in that control, they'll threaten you. And that's exactly what they do to the apostles. But soon, there is going to be more and more adversity. In fact, in a few chapters, we're going to see the very first martyr of the early church because the, the potential for, per, per, for persecution is real. And, and we're not just talking loss of like friendships, but like loss of families. And we're not just talking loss of jobs, but potentially loss of life. Uh, for the apostles that we'll see in the text and I find it very telling what the disciples did next you know what the apostles did next they 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 did not go and flee they didn't shut down they didn't go into like hiding they gathered together as a community I you to look at verse 23 of chapter 4 it says when they were released where were they released from jail they'd been in jail and they'd been put on trial when they were released they went to their what is that word their friends <laughs> That's such a great word. And some of your versions, it may read their people. You could also translate it their tribe. Oh, <laughs> their tribe has changed. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Right when they're released from jail, they immediately went to meet with their community. Uh, things have changed. Their tribe has shifted. At one point, the, the apostles probably had a pretty far-ranging tribe, but now all of a sudden, their tribe is centralized to people who confess Christ. Your tribe will change. And I was just standing in front of a Starbucks this week as this guy was telling me he's searching for his tribe. He's looking for a place where he felt like he fit in, where people believed similar things and where people were doing similar things and where he didn't feel like such an outcast. We're all searching for a tribe, but I'll tell you there's no greater tribe than a tribe that is centered on Christ. There's nothing that should unite us deeper. It's not your sports team. It's not your favorite hobby or activity on the weekends. What should unite us most is Christ. And when Christ unites us, this tribe becomes something revolutionary. We become more than friends, we become family. I pray that this becomes your tribe. Okay, so look around, say hi tribe members. Whatever. Say you're my tribe, look around, say it to each other. Come on, I can't hear you. You're my tribe. You're my tribe. Thanks, Michelle. See, we're never to separate from culture. Sean, she's your tribe, bro. You married into that tribe, buddy. Hey, we are never separated from culture, okay? So I don't want you to get this in your mind that we connect together as tribe. No, we're always in culture. We're always impacting culture, but we come together to covenant and to connect and to grow together. There's something significant 
about what we're doing here. And that's exactly what the early church modeled. They, they immediately came together as a community, and the apostles reported what they had faced. Uh, the first part of verse 24, it says, when they heard about it, that is when the tribe heard about it. That's when the community heard the report of all that happened. And so the question is, how do you think they're going to respond now that they've heard this message of threat and this potential for persecution that is coming? Okay, we know that persecution's coming. We know it. I mean, we know it in the text, and I'll, and I'll argue that even in this life that we're living now, persecution is coming, and so how do they respond? I love William Barclay. Tyler, where's Tyler? Tyler, you in here? I, I gave you William Barclay's commentary, and I was like, I don't really read William Barclay, and now I'm like quoting William Barclay because this is so good. So I encourage you to use those commentaries I gave you, but he's so good in pen what he writes. This is such a, a salient statement. It might have been thought that when Peter and John returned with their story, a deep depression would have fallen on the church. I mean, of course, right? They've been threatened. They could potentially lose their lives. I mean, that, that's kind of depressing, right? Uh, and it says, uh, as they looked ahead to the troubles which were now bound to descend upon them, the one thing, listen to this, the one thing that they never, that never even struck them was to obey the Sanhedrin's command to speak no more. Isn't that incredible? They didn't even think about that. Like, it didn't even cross their mind. But listen to this. Into their minds at that moment, there came a certain great convictions or certain great convictions, and into their lives, there came a tide of strength. You see, the Sanhedrin, what they thought was, was by their threats, they would potentially disband this early group of Christ followers, but what they did was galvanize them together. You see, in Christ, adversity, what it does, it doesn't necessarily drive us apart, but what it does is it births a revolutionary spirit. In Christ, adversity does not drive us apart. It actually births a revolutionary spirit. And that's exactly what we see here in the text. So what do you do when you're commanded to no longer talk about Jesus? What do you do? <laughs> I love that. Keep talking about him. Okay, before we get to talking about him, let's talk to God. We first pray. Okay? What do we do when we're commanded, when we're faced with that type of adversity? We, we galvanize together and we pray, which is exactly what the early church did. In, first, in verse 24, it says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together to God. First, we're going to talk about the atmosphere of their prayer, but then we'll talk about the content of their prayer. First, the atmosphere. They lifted. Okay? That word lifted is the Greek word iro, and it means to lift something up off of the earth. Like, for example, a pencil falls on the floor, you pick it up off of the ground. Iro, you lift it. Or there, in my case, a pile of Legos on the carpet at home, and you take out the vacuum cleaner and you vacuum them up. <laughs> Which was way funnier in first service because my kids were sitting here and they were like, you do what? <laughs> Can't tell you how good that feels. As a parent, there goes 15 bucks. I don't even care. Stepped on so many of those Legos. But you lift them up off the ground, right? Well, when it comes to prayer, this is what's fascinating. When the word is used for prayer, there's something more significant happening. Because we have conversations with people. Stephen, you and I can have a conversation. It's between you and I. It stays here on earth. We can have a conversation with ourselves. It's not because you're crazy. I do that too. But there is a point when we lift our voices, our feet are here on earth. We lift our voices, they raise off of, up off of earth, and they, they make their way into heaven. Okay, that's what prayer is. Prayer is our feet firmly planted on earth, but our voices rise to, to heaven, to the throne room of God. Okay, so something very significant is happening when we bow our heads to pray. And that's not just to transition our stage. That's not just to, like, 
fill in some time when we're supposed to pray. No, we're actually raising our voices to heaven. And they're not individual prayers. This is a group of community because secondly, not only did they lift their voices, but they did it together. They lifted their voices together. That word together is so significant, and I've highlighted it each time we've looked at it. It's found in Acts 1, Acts 2, now Acts 4. It's found 12 times through the book of Acts. It is the Greek word homothumadon, and it means to rush along in unison. Okay, it's a very, very significant word. So they are lifting their prayers together, rushing along in unison, and it's actually really like a symphony. I'm going to quote here from the net notes. This is such a good statement on describing what homothumadon means. It's a unique Greek word. It helps us to understand the uniqueness of Christian community. It helps us understand the uniqueness of what is happening here in this place. Homothumadon is a compound of two words meaning to rush along and in unison. The image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone as the instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concert master. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit blending. Holy Spirit blends together the lives and the members of Christ's church. See, we're all very, very different. But because this is our tribe and we connect together, we come and we, we lift our voices, we raise up our voices up off of the earth together in unison in pitch and tone and harmony of mind, heart, and soul. That's what makes this place so unique is that we're all so very, very different, but in Christ, we in oneness approach God in prayer. And so that's exactly what they did. That was the atmosphere. They lifted together their voices. Now the question is, what is the content of their prayer? What do you pray when you have the opportunity to connect to one another, to lift your voices up to God in unison and togetherness? Well, first, you start with the character and nature of God. And I find it fascinating that the early church began their prayer focused on God's sovereignty, on God's sovereignty. In fact, look at verse 24, the end part of verse 24. It says, this is their prayer. So here's the symphony, the conductor, Holy Spirit. Here are the words. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them. <laughs> sovereign Lord. They begin by calling God, that, that phrase sovereign Lord is one word, it's despotes, and it means master or Lord, one who controls it all. It was a word that was often re referenced of kings and Caesars because they had total autonomy and total authority. It also became shaded with kind of evil and tyranny with how that, that despotis was, was utilized. In fact, it's where we get the English word despot. If you've ever heard that word despot. Uh, but the word despot, it, it means uh, a ruler or other person who holds absolute power, uh, typically one who exercises it in a cruel or oppressive way. That is this distortion, by the way of what despotis is supposed to mean because when God wields absolute authority and power, he does not do it for evil or for tyranny. He does it for his own glory and for our good. Okay, and so he is, he is first the despotes. He is the creator. That is, he is the one who created the heavens, the earth, and the seas and all that, all that fills them. Okay, family, we need to wrap our heads around that. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is not a great fictional account. Uh, uh, it is nonfiction. It is, it is exactly how God set in place the heavens and the earth. He is the creator. And when, when you approach the creator and you think of the massive nature of creation, what does that do to you? It's very humbling, isn't it? I, I think as the psalmist said, what is man that you're mindful of, of him when I consider the work of your hand? It's a powerful hand he's got. 
And so he's, he is the creator of heaven and earth and, and seas and all that fills him. And because he is the creator, guess what? He's the boss, right? And some people get all beefed at this and they're like, well, God has no right to tell me what to do. I'm like, well, this is his earth. Uh, it's his her, her universe. It's, it's his sea. Uh, everything that fills it is his. Well, I don't like that. Well, uh, as J. Vernon McGee would say, well, then you're going to have to go get yourself a whole new universe and a whole new ball to stand on because this, this one happens to be his. He operates with total authority and total autonomy and total power. Simply put, God is in control. There was something very comforting to the early church to recognize that God is totally in control and sovereign. And I think we've lost that in the contemporary church. We've lost that awe of a God who is totally in control of human history, not just human history, but our story. That was not lost on them. In fact, the sovereign Lord was not only the sovereign Lord of creation and, and, and all of humanity, but he was the sovereign Lord who put in place the, the process of salvation, and he is the God who has authored the scriptures. See, the early church, they had some really strong convictions. God is sovereign, and God's word's perfect, because that's exactly where they turn in their prayer. They then pray this, verse 25, the despotes who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, that when David was speaking scripture, when David was writing scripture, he was, he was authoring, he was writing the words of God, that we can trust that this is God's word. As God breathed, it is breathed out by God, moved the human authors to move their pen, and they recorded for us the, the words of, of him, his, his living word. And in Psalm chapter 2, these, these early, this early community found great comfort in Psalm chapter 2. Listen to this. They quote, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They quote from a royal psalm. We've lost that too, the royal psalms. Wow, it speaks of a time of future when, when God, Christ, will rule on planet earth. And the nations are going to rage and they're going to plot in vain. They're going to gnash their teeth. They're going to stomp and snort like a horse that's showing its strength. It's pure pageantry. Could you imagine trying to stand against the Lord and against his anointed? What's going to happen? You're going to lose. You're going to be crushed like potsherd. <laughs> I told you I'd throw that word in there. He wields his scepter with power. That's a future event. But the apostles, what they saw, they saw that same spirit of rebellion at work in the Sanhedrin, not only at work in the Sanhedrin, but in Passion Week. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. There was unity. There was unity among Herod, there was unity among Pilate, and if you don't know anything about Herod and Pilate, that's significant because they were not buds, and then afterwards they were like good friends. They united around standing against the Lord and against his anointed. The, Israel, the, the leaders of Israel and the Israel, the Israel people, they joined together for what? What purpose did they join together? To kill Jesus. They, they came together to crucify their Messiah and crucify, uh, speaking of Herod and Pilate, the Messiah of Israel, but also the Savior of the earth. He was crucified. They stood. They raged against the Lord and against his anointed, but it was completely according to God's sovereign plan, verse 28, because they did whatever your hand, your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that incredible? You know, we think we have power. <laughs> All of it according to God's plan. All of it according to his hand and his predetermined will. 
There are three phrases in there that, that really speak of God's sovereignty. First, his hand. That means he has absolute power. That's why it's significant that Jesus is found at the right hand of the Father. It's a place of power. His hand is absolute power. His plan, that's unthwartable. You, can, you cannot change his plan. That's why it is so crazy to, to seriously consider to ask God to change his plan. Family, we can do that. You can keep doing that. But so much better to just say, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please let me get on your plan. Because his plan is not changeable. Because he has predetermined will. Okay? He has predetermined. That is, he has predestined. That means there's absolutely unchangeable aspects of life that will not change. Okay? They are set in place. He is predecided. He is predetermined, set in place long before it happens. One of the biggest struggles we have with this concept, with God being totally in control, is because our life is so out of control. Do you ever feel like your life is out of control? Ever? <laughs> Do you ever feel like your life is unmanageable? Please, let me not be the only one. Right? Life is out of control. It's unmanageable. Oh, I got double hands. Right on. It feels that way. And you know what? We start to feel that way, and then we start to attribute that to God, that somehow God's overwhelmed, and, and God's looking at our life and going, yeah, it's pretty unmanageable. Shelly, you're a mess. Well, sorry. Wow, I wish I had more power. You think God looks at your life that way? The God who created the heaven and the earth and the seas and filled them? You think he ever looks at our life and thinks that it's unmanageable? Here's the, here's the problem. We start to view God the way we view ourselves. Yes, there are things that are out of our control. There are things that are unmanageable, but you know what? God never, ever looks at your life that way. There's not a single life on earth that is unmanageable in his economy. In fact, he all, however many billions of people, he knows the exact number. He knows the person who's taking their final breath right now and the baby who's crying for the first time right now. He knows every thought, meditation of the human heart. He knows every hair on every single person's head. He knows every single aspect of every single person on earth right now ever ever will be he knows every day of their life before they live a single one that my family is sovereignty and it should blow our minds we need a higher view of god and a lesser view of self we need to see god as infinite and us as finite and we need to recognize that nothing is out of his divine plan or out of his control and we can talk about evil and suffering uh, and sermons in the future, but I'll tell you right now, even persecution is a part of his plan. Centuries and centuries and centuries ago, in fact, years before Christ was crucified, he sat on a hillside with his disciples. Kind of a day like today. It was beautiful outside. Birds were chirping. Sitting beside the Sea of Galilee. We could, maybe Lake Ray Hubbard would be a good place we could gather. And he spoke these words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. When I read that, I don't think that is a blessing, right? I don't look at that and I go, wow, what a blessed life. I think, wow, what a beating. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, a part of God's sovereign plan is our suffering. And that, family, is the toughest part. The early church was not confused. They knew that suffering was a part of the deal. They were not asking for a new deal. In fact, we get to read now what their prayer request is. And it may surprise you. It surprised me this week because they didn't ask for protection. 
They didn't ask for safety. They didn't ask for a hedge of protection, whatever that means. I don't even know what a hedge of protection is. I, saw, I heard a comedian talk about it. Like, are you asking for God to build, like, bushes around you and, like, shape them like a hedge? I don't know how protecting that is. How about traveling mercies? Have you ever wondered, like, we always pray, Lord, I pray for traveling mercies. Don't know what that means. I wish I did. I know we're, like, asking God to get us there safely, and da, da, da. I'm going to tell you right now, the Christian life isn't safe. And we run to things that think we think are going to make us safe, right? Like, we look at certain political parties, we look at certain political leaders, and we're like, we, we want them because they, they make us feel safe. And, and we get more guns, we'll feel safe. We build bigger fences, we'll feel safe. You're not safe. There's nothing about this life that is safe. The Christian life isn't safe. And I'm sorry if you've been told that. It's, it's total fallacy. There's nothing safe about it. It's risky. It could cost you your life. There are people who are dying right now because of the name of Jesus. It isn't safe, but I'll tell you, it is right and it is good. And nothing can change God's sovereign plan. You're under his sovereign will and his sovereign protection. That's speaking of eternity, family. Wow, I just got really real. Okay, verse 30. Oh, we didn't do verse 29. Because they didn't ask for safety. They didn't ask for a hedge of protection, again, whatever that means, or traveling mercies. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and kick their butts. No, he didn't say that. They didn't say that. He said, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with what? All boldness. That word boldness, it means free, unhindered, bold confidence. Like today we talked about I'm free. Like they prayed for that type of boldness to freely speak the name of Jesus with free and fearless confidence to stand in boldness. And say, God, so fill us that we continue to speak your word regardless of the threats, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the potential for us to suffer and not be safe. Fill us with boldness that we proclaim his name all the more. Because we honestly believe that there's no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. And whether it's right for us to obey you or God, you're going to have to decide. But we must, we must proclaim the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. And then they ask God to do what only God can do, verse 30. While you stretch out your hand, that phrase usually, phraseology is usually in judgment, but no, not in hurting, but in healing. Stretch out your hand to heal, that you continue to perform signs and wonders that are performed in through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They're like, we're not going to stop spreading his name. Don't start, stop doing miraculous things through his name. And family, we're going to continue to preach the name of Jesus because you know what? The miraculous happens. There's power in the name of Jesus. I've seen power in your lives. I've seen people freed from addiction. I've seen marriages saved from death. I've seen people who have been radically transformed by the powerful name of Jesus. And we're not going to stop spreading his name. And so how does God answer this prayer? With shaking and a fresh filling. With shaking and a fresh filling. Filling. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. What does that speak of? Power. God's presence in power. 
The place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they continue to speak? They continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. With free and fearless confidence, they continued to preach the word of God. A revolutionary spirit was being birthed out in this early church. They were galvanized together around the message of Christ. And I'll tell you, it didn't just impact their preaching, but it impacted their community, as we will see next week. A few applications for us. First, the revolutionary act. Now, I say this. i got to ask you, is, is it becoming more and more taboo to talk about Jesus? I mean, is that real? Am I just making that up? I mean, you guys are in the real world, right? Okay, keep the personal life at home. So you guys feel the pressure on college campuses, school campuses. Is that same pressure felt in high school? Keep Jesus to yourself at all? Am I just making that up? No? You're shaking your head no. You, you feel, yeah. Right. Huh. So it's not as. Huh. Very cool. Maybe we think there's more pressure than there actually is. So when we're facing these pressures to keep Jesus to ourselves, maybe it's not as dire as we think. Maybe we don't have to conceal him. Maybe we don't have to hide him. Maybe we don't have to keep quiet. Wonderful. Thank you, Miss Debbie. It's not revolutionary to keep quiet, but it is revolutionary to speak his name. Let me look, I'm going to show you our mission statement. Firewall Bible Fellowship, this is why we exist. We, engage, we exist to engage and develop the unchurched, dechurched, and badly churched people. By the way, in a five-mile radius around the church, there's 150,000. Large, vast majority of them fit into that category. We're asking God for 2%. We're saying, God, can we reach 2%, engage and develop 3,000 people into a revolutionary Christ-centered community? You know what makes us revolutionary? Not that we're here on Sunday. People gather on Sundays all over the world. What makes us revolutionary is that we galvanize together and we share the name of Jesus with the world. That's what makes us revolutionary. Next week, we're going to see how that revolutionary spirit impacts how we do this as a community. The Revolutionary Act, we must, share the, we must share the message of Jesus Christ with the world. And then secondly, I want you to take this home too, prayer focused on sovereignty. Some of you may be wrestling with this idea, this, this, this wrestling between free will and God's sovereignty. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are, you are free to walk in God's sovereignty all you like. You can fight against his sovereignty, and it's like trying to go out in the ocean, you just get taken down through the waves. He's going to get you where you're supposed to go. Or you can just ride the wave. And I want to encourage us to start praying prayers that are focused on God being in control and sovereign. It's going to humble, and it's going to give you peace. It just does, because you realize that I'm not in control. God, grant me to the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. 
God, you're in control. You're in control of my life. You're in control of the world. You've created it all. And give me boldness. Give me courage. Give me a greater faith. So often we're asking God to change his will. May that not be our plan any longer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy on earth as it is in heaven. Then our requests. Prayer centered on sovereignty. And then finally, none of this is possible without a fresh filling. How far are you getting down the road today without any gas in your tank? You ain't getting nowhere. You'd be out here in the parking lot block, blocking the exit. You're not going anywhere without gas in your tank. Well, the same could be said of our Holy Spirit gas tank. If we do not have a fresh filling, we're not going to be, to, uh, be able to undertake a fresh calling. Okay, we need fresh filling every single day to walk in the purposes that God has for us. Fresh filling is for a fresh purpose. And so we need to daily be praying, God, fill me today. Fill me with fresh filling so that I can undertake a fresh purpose today, as we saw clearly in the text. So let's pray with that in mind. Lord, we thank you for your word and the fact that we can gather together and worship you and pray to you. If you were here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you do not know this Jesus that I've been talking about. And for, for whatever reason, maybe you can't even explain it, you feel like God is calling you. I need you to understand that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross. He was buried and he is risen from the dead. The Bible declares that all who believe in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. God the Father sent his son to die for you. He was buried, he's risen, he's alive right now, he's ascended and he's exalted. The Bible says that all who call out upon the name of the Lord will be saved. His name is Jesus. And so if you want to be saved today, you want to give your life to God and receive his son as your savior in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried and I believe you have risen from the dead. Please save my life. Take my life. Take the worst of the worst and the best of the best. Take it all. I want a new life. I want an eternal life. Come into my life and make me your own, Lord Jesus. If that is your heart's prayer, the Bible just declares that you've just passed from death to life. The Holy Spirit has come into your life. You are now a son or a daughter of God. You are eternally saved. Not because of a single thing that you have worked for, but just because you are willing to receive salvation. You are free to receive him as your Savior. And so, Lord, with that incredible, incredible gift on our mind, the fact that we can share that with the world, we ask for a fresh filling today, a boldness to proclaim. Birth here a revolutionary spirit that we would all the more take the name of Jesus to the world. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. So I walk upon